0: You can support the Double Loop Podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Thank you to our supporters, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, uh, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you work on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray,
1: And I'm Glenn Langenberg.
0: And uh, I am here live at the Florida Division of the IAI uh, in beautiful Panama City Beach, Florida, which I just learned was the home of the world's most beautiful beaches. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So Glenn is calling in remotely all the way from Minnesota. Uh, So with a little bit of technology, uh, he's joining us here and uh, got a group in the room and we're just gonna have kind of a a little bit of an open discussion about uh, fingerprint stuff. So before we get into that, though, I still have a little factoid to share with uh, everybody. Um, Glenn, I I learned, and everyone else, I learned that uh, Liechtenstein, a very tiny European country of Liechtenstein, smaller than Washington, D.C., is the world's major exporter of false teeth, with 20% of the world's exports of false teeth. So there's another little
1: fact for everybody. (laughs) Hey, Eric. Yeah? Uh, A small story to add to that. You know Cedric Newman. Yes, Yes, when he was in the Swiss military, uh, he was part of the you know the motorcycle brigade thing, and so he was leading a division, and so he accidentally led a division of Swiss soldiers into Liechtenstein, which is technically technically he invaded Liechtenstein.
0: <laughs> I was. I... That's amazing because in the little I went to the page of facts about Liechtenstein, and that was one of the facts was that it was invaded. I had, <laughs> that is awesome that that was Cedric <laughs> that led the invasion force. Wow, that, I'm just my mind is blown now. So, all right, <laughs> uh, well, Glenn, let's uh, go ahead and get to get started uh, here uh, for everyone here in the room. Uh, since Glenn can't be joining us, you know, physically, I. I I've, uh, I've added in him to the slideshow, so I'm glad you put your picture from your webpage uh, up on the screen behind me. Uh, oh, thank you. So everyone can see your, 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 you know, your medium grin, size grin uh, looking back uh, in your fancy you know, suit. Anyway, like I was uh, saying, um, I, I want this to kind of be a, uh, a more of an open discussion. A lot of times when we do this double the podcast uh, at conferences, uh, we have uh, you know, a panel and we'll ask the panel questions and then we'll get people from the audience to, to ask us questions for this one though, a couple months ago I was in Austin, Texas and I um, was going to do an interview with some of the examiners there and it eventually just kind of turned into them just asking me and Glenn stuff, so I thought well, that's not a bad idea, let's kind of you know, move that here to the conference so um, i I've I really just kind of want to see what's on the mind of examiners out there, and uh, see how you know Glenn and I would respond, and then also maybe even have that continue on with uh, with the rest of the group that's here in the room. Uh, so sound good? Sounds good. All right. Um, so um, I know going first is the tough one, but uh, uh, does who has a, a question that, that can start us off with the first little topic for uh, for today's chat? yes
1: yeah. Are they mobbing you?
0: Uh, Bill Bill, Bill uh, waved his hand around so I could notice him.
2: I, I forgot you can't see my hand raised. Uh, I have a question that, you know, so much of this stuff is interrelated. Everything you talk about leads to another topic. So, one question, you see, will your entire podcast. Right? <laughs> I'm going to do a presentation tomorrow talking about late print automation. So, here's my question As we move forward better with better and better technology, whether it's APHIS, visualization technology that lets us see things in light prints that you can't see with a glass, like we used to do it. Um, as we move forward and get these better tools, I think we're seeing more and more close calls. We're getting responses back that you wonder how did the machine ever return this response? And so now it raises the other question of how do you report them out? It raises the questions of is this transparency or is it trouble? <laughs> you know, when we start to do reports with these wordings. And everybody is facing the same issues, and yet we're solving it in different ways. When we talk to people at these conferences, an agency will have a policy on that. Here's how we're going to handle it. Somebody else does it different. I think they're all trying to solve the same problem. They all think that their way is good quality measure, perhaps. And sometimes you look at that with a, a jaded eye and say, well, it's the appearance of quality, but is it truly improving quality? So I, I'm not quite sure what the question is in there, but it certainly is a discussion that I've heard in the halls here and I've had with my peers at this conference and for quite some time. Um, you know, when atheist starts can plot latents automatically and send them off to search, is that superior to an examiner plotting what he thinks he sees and getting away from the days of he's got a good eye, he's got better skills than somebody else, and so they come to different conclusions. I've seen so many changes in my time in the business, I wonder what's going to happen in five or ten years. Will the prints be fed into the system? The answer comes out and you just have to verify and report it and testify to it. The machine can't testify. But is that superior because it's, you know, much more objective than subjective? Even using probabilities, it's always based on what the examiner thinks he sees in the unknown print. And you come up with ratios and numbers, or you come up with a verbal scale. I've heard those presentations. What's the best way to record it, and how do we get that information recorded? So that's a big topic. Big topic topic
0: to start with. Well, um, I'll take a a first stab at uh, one little piece of it um, with the uh, the automation, and um, because. you know, just went through uh, an upgrade of APHIS uh, in our lab, we went live two years ago with it, or just about two years ago. And it's, um, part of that was finding out what's the, what's the best search strategy? What gets us the best results? Um, and uh, what we eventually kind of found just with working with the system ourselves uh, is a mix of all the different options. So we'll, we'll send off a search with the machine doing the auto code. It's totally automatic, just ask for one candidate, um, and most of the time when we get a hit, it finds it on its own. But it's not enough, and we can do better if we follow it up with a manual search. So we'll do that. And evaluate again, how many candidates should we look at? What At what point do you, do you really just, you're doing a lot of extra work for not a whole lot of, um, of, uh, of reward. Um, Ron, what's Ron Smith's uh, expression juice for that? Worth the squeeze. Yeah, juice isn't worth the squeeze. Um, <laughs> but so
2: they the agency respond to that by then setting up artificial rules of, you know, we'll report out eight hits, but we're not going to complete the task, and, you know, we'll, we'll put that out there. Is that being transparent, or is it causing trouble?
0: And again, I think it's... it's um, well, for that aspect of it I think we're just end up being just like every other part of law enforcement you know you um I know in in uh, in Phoenix I, I now live in a suburb next door but when I lived in Phoenix um you get your house broken into they say here's your here's your number they wouldn't even bother coming out to the scene um and you know all agencies have to deal with limited resources and picking and choosing at what point do you do you stop with the, uh, the investigation? And you know, our part of it is, is gonna be the same way. We have to find a, a point where we can't really necessarily do everything. But uh, for the automation part, uh, yeah, that's gonna keep getting better. Um, but like you said, it's always gonna be the human examiner that has to come on at the end. Um,
2: and present the evidence. And present the explain evidence. explain it to a jury. Yep. And how they explain it. Which I know you said about doing things like law enforcement. That's what the critics want us to stop, being like law enforcement. They don't want us, and, and that's where they will attack us for not completing the task, or for making artificial decisions on what we pursue, or not pursue, or we only go after it a suspect, there's no reason to compare anybody else, and yet that's not objective and transparent. Then,
0: then we can do what the critics say, be more like DNA, and uh, DNA doesn't do anything. <laughs> they, wow. they, they stop... Uh, uh, they'll even limit what they process and they, they do all right. sorts of stuff to do that.
2: submit five pieces of evidence and we'll do those before we submit any more. Um, it, it's a confusing question, and I think practitioners are confused. I think agencies are reactionary. Law enforcement has always been reactionary. It's not a problem, we don't have to fix it. Um, but then when you do have the problem, now you look bad. you're back and fine and you recover your credibility. Um,
0: I don't know. So, uh, Glenn, uh, do you, I mean it is, again, it's again a broad topic, but do you have a piece that you wanted to touch on?
1: Yeah, I mean, I just I'm going to share my my thought here that I know when I first started, and Bill, don't don't laugh, but it was uh, in the year 2000, and uh, you know, uh, 18 years now later, I I think I have a very different view on what I had back then. When I first started, I remember they were talking about the concept of lights out with 10 prints, just uh, being able to do uh, automated identifications with 10 prints. And I remember saying to my managers and lab director, oh, never going to happen. We can't trust the computers that this is a ridiculous idea. And, you know, just a few years later, it had been relatively perfected. And the idea today that every 10 print would have to be done by a human seems ridiculous in my mind. And I know when they were talking about lights out, you know, maybe for latents, maybe 10, 12 years ago, they had the same reaction. No, no, no way, you know, not not possible and think about the number of erroneous IDs and think about what police officers will do with this information and here i sit in 2017 uh, you know at the end of at the end of this uh, year it'll be like i said almost 18 years and i have a really different view today i i look at this and go and I look at the other disciplines you know, outside of fingerprints, the, the chemi- chemi- chemistry and DNA, and I'm seeing so many presumptive tests being used to solve cases and resolve cases and, and 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 have plea bargains and treatment and all kinds of other resolutions. And I think, why not? Why why couldn't we be running those simple latents? And Especially really good ones at a scene where an officer could uh, throw powder, not even lift it, but photograph it with some handheld device, upload it into an APHIS, and basically get an investigative lead back as long as he understands it's a presumptive test for these purposes. And then ultimately if it gets challenged, then that's where the human fingerprint examiner comes in does a markup, a mock up and goes to trial on it if necessary uh, to solve crimes. Because of exactly what you said, Eric, the officers aren't even coming out to the scene in, in Phoenix because, well, it's so much work they'd have to submit to the crime lab, but if they could come out, dust, capture, and have a result within an hour of the burglary and, and potentially a lights-out hit with You know, the systems that we have in place today, why not? As long as they understand it's an investigative tool and not necessarily proof of guilt at that point. So I guess I have this ever-evolving viewpoint now and having seen lots of research on this topic and how lights-out systems can work for AFIS, And, you know, at what threshold are they pretty accurate when you've got a clear, abundant, minutia-filled latent print yeah, I, I guess I'm of the, of the mindset If it's in the proper context The understanding of its mm, Presumptive investigative nature Why not? Why not be using that information To solve crimes quickly Instead of waiting for the backlogs At a, at a crime lab
0: Yeah, to, to some extent We've, we've taken our, Arizona, our First steps into that um, Like many uh, you know, state agencies We have to do the, uh, the IDs For the CODIS hits um, so, you know, CODIS gets the DNA match, but, you know, we have to then follow up with fingerprints because, you yeah, know, fingerprints are the <laughs> real story. So
2: standard, and that's part of the problem, Eric, is that to tell the detectives that I'm going to, you're going to get an answer from the fingerprint section, but it's not absolute and it's not your probable cause. That's going to take some time.
0: To get used to? To, to explain uh, to
2: them and for them to get that out of their head, that, it, de- it. it
0: depends on the, on the, on how you set it up. Like, like Glenn was saying, it depends on how you set it up. Uh, because right now, they've gotten used to uh, the lights <laughs> out on the temperance side. You roll, you get into, into, um, you know, the jail, you roll his fingers, it's going to tell you who it is, uh, and most of the time in a lot of agencies, that's just all lights out, just the computer telling you uh, who it is, because the score is so high that there's just it's. It, it, They've never, in all the tests, ever seen a non-match come back with a score that high. Um, so we started doing in, in with these CODIS is, we were just tired of doing all the comparisons for the CODIS section, and then getting them all verified, and writing them all up, and, and that whole process. So we just started scanning those prints into APHIS, sending them on out, printing out the, little re- the reply that has the score uh, there. If the score is high enough, and to the point where we've never seen a non-match with a score that high and we give that paperwork with the score on it to the back to the CODIS unit and say all right there you go there's your there's your association of the fingerprints um now granted this is
2: those are clerical though. So. exactly these are clerical
0: tasks and this is a 10 print essentially that we're looking at and um you know we kind of know what the answer should be because it, this guy's named on the paper but it is a first step. And with with the with that as the beginning, you know, I can definitely see we all know that sometimes some latents are better than exemplars. So uh, if you do get a latent where you can scan it in and the score is up at that point where no one has that system has never had ever a non-match with the score that high. Um, then uh, that'd be great, there was a, uh, one of the examiners I was talking to from Australia, again this isn't, this is part of what Glenn is talking about, um, they got a print. they uh, scanned it with their, uh, with the system they had on scene, that could then remotely transfer it back to the office, where the examiner put it into APHIS, the APHIS got a hit, um, they you know, told back, went back to the crime scene to say, h- here's the hit, uh, detectives got in the car, uh, went looking for him uh, they got a flag that he was at the airport ready to leave the country and uh, went and pulled him off the plane um, otherwise it would have been too late you know, the, the, granted again, that's only part of it because it's a, that's still someone human uh, doing the search but uh, the possibilities uh, are fantastic and if we set it up correctly the risk of bad stuff happening is pretty low The
2: that do the same thing tablet in search of the apis, the answer comes back. It, it doesn't have to be in the code for the apis search. But, so now we've gone to the next question. we talked about the levels of complexity on latent prints Another so the topic and you know, other presentations. You know, should we be reporting? I've always testified that not all prints if I make an ID, they're all equal. It's a solid ID and we were afraid to admit that some were tougher than others because we didn't want to be in that confrontation with attorney me, well, how tough was it? And it was a tougher than the last one. That's something that has to change when like we talk about doing these things. And that might be the most transparent thing that we can do, if we want to be objective, is to admit that, yeah, I spent a lot of time on this, and you know, I could demonstrate it to your satisfaction and the satisfaction of others, but this is more than the last one I was in the world. Is that weaken my testimony? Probably not, if you do it right.
0: Exactly. If, you do it, if, you, if you're confident in how you're just describing it, I think there's no problem in, in admitting that a 50-point ID uh, is, is, phrasing it this way, The a lower risk of error with a 50-point ID with an 8-point ID. Perhaps
2: think, it didn't even need verification because the additional quality measures were not necessary if you define when to apply those quality.
0: Uh, Glenn, did you
1: have uh, anything to follow up? Again, big topic here another piece that uh, he was talking about. Well, um, I'm not sure what I can actually say here, but I I was just at a conference uh, last week, and I know that there's a couple of different groups that are working on some empirical research for defining complexity in latent prints. And uh it's gonna be some time before we see that, but I mean, I the bill's absolutely right that you know we've talked for some years about com- complex latent prints and what that means, and I don't think we we should always be thinking the you know taking we can't take the shortcut that it's just based on the number of minutia or you know, because we know that's not the case, that you can still have a high number of minutiae and have some crazy distortion or really low quality or those things. But I, I think the, at least the couple of groups working on this problem I think will uh, help us define complexity uh, in broader terms and with more metrics than just X number of minutiae, which I think is a good thing. And so I guess I would say stay tuned for that, and uh, and until then, we've got the SWIG fast sufficiency chart, which I think we can all fall back on, and, and I and I do think should be used in casework for helping to assess complexity of a latent print, and then corresponding documentation, verification procedures, et cetera.
0: Again, it's a starting point, and uh, it can you know, be developed and, and uh, worked on. Uh, down the road but uh, you know I think that uh, that graph is you know over the years since it was first published in 2011 I want to say has really kind of held up as as um, as a good estimate of of, you know in general this is how uh, we make decisions and this is when things get complex. So open it up uh, other other questions for us other topics uh, that uh, you guys would like us to uh, to hit on. Yes, sir. Um, name is Ron Let me do a, a quick recap for you. Um, uh, he had a uh, homicide scene, uh, found a bloody uh, fingerprint, um, took some time to process it, uh, got some detail, processed it further, got additional detail, had to kind of merge the photos together even, do ridge-, ridge tracing, it was a, definitely a complex print. Uh, but had the mindset of, alright, here's the suspect, let's just go right to the suspect. To the comparisons worked on it finally came to an id decision and then thought oh well APHIS. Aphis is really good now let's just see what what it would say and puts it into Aphis and gets a hit first candidate to that same suspect so how would that work in in court or what what benefit or what can you say in your report or in court that you also have this other thing does that help your testimony, does that um, bolster your opinion that APHIS also found it?
1: Okay, and what was the gentleman's name?
0: I'm uh, Ron Mueller. So do you have any initial thoughts? I'm going to let you go first on this one.
1: Oh, uh, okay. My, my initial thought is I'm not quite sure how to handle the report aspect of it. Uh, it. It seems like maybe it should be in the report, but putting that aside for a moment, I, I do think that it could possibly help the case I mean I think that you know having done that comparison then you come back and say having searched in APHIS it supports it although here's here's the thing and then I got to poke a little bit what if it didn't would you have been just as willing to have presented it in a different light if it didn't support that I mean I understand that it, it came back and you know supports this individual but again what if it had suggested someone else Uh, would that have been recorded? Would you have been just as willing to, um, remove some weight from your initial identification? I doubt it, but I'm working through that. Um, I think that it does support, I think it helps. I just don't know how to handle the reporting of it and what do you do when it doesn't, uh, hit that individual or that individual, um, is really, really far down the list. Hmm. What do you think, Eric? Yeah, I, I, I
0: mean, the concept I think is is strong because, in a way, it's a, a rudimentary application of what the Army Crime Lab and and you know the other um, statistic-minded people are trying to push for is a. I'm doing air quotes here. Uh, objective computer number thing come out to say more than just what the human is. Now again that's not what APIs is designed to do, but it's it's a it's along that path. So and in my viewpoint, once we get to the end of that path, that's exactly what it's gonna look like is that we reach our decision and then that is supported to some greater or lesser extent by a model of, a staff or something that follows that up but like glenn's saying uh, right now it, before you just you know some oh it's a great idea deploy it let's go there's some stuff to think about of exactly what he was saying well, what if it doesn't match or what if it it's what if it comes down further on the list or if there's something that's what if it's number two you know um or do you just go by us um a set score, even if it's number one, but it's a lower number one versus a super high number one.
2: And how objective is it if you're plotting what you see versus I put it in the computer, extracted, it, and it came back number one? That to me is a big difference. That was my question early
0: on. Exactly. Is is do you let the I mean, for that one, the auto encode probably wouldn't work.
3: I, well, I did did auto encode. Yeah. And the the clarity did come out, but some of the other ones. Right. And yeah. And uh, my in this case, what I did is I, I didn't record it at all. All I did is I just printed out the APIs for and put it in my notes. Okay. You know, because I didn't even know how to address that because there's other issues too with it. Um, we're not even allowed to mention papers in court.
0: That's that's something that came. Up, I was gonna. Hopefully, someone's gonna mention because that was something that came up in Rochelle's topic. Yeah. What he was saying is that. Um, uh, here in Florida, you're not allowed to mention APHIS in in court. So, we'll, we'll get to that here in a minute, but um, um, anyway, that was kind of, that's kind of my thoughts on it, is, is, uh, it's I think good to start thinking about, and I'm glad that people are, are, you know, kind of thinking, oh, this, this could be a good idea under the right circumstances, and then the next step is, okay, figure out how is this supposed to work, how would this best work, um, and maybe even get a, a uh, uh, you know some sort of software program or, or model that does that's built specifically to do that and so just one that's that's APHIS um, and, uh, and follow it up but um, I also just to, to finish off um, I, there have been a couple times where uh, that idea has been suggested by prosecutors saying are you just comparative you know, did you search it through APHIS? What if you were to search it through APHIS? So I've, I've you know, been kind of like, oh, we don't need to do that. It's, you know, I've already made the ID. You know. But um, it's not even just us. Other people have also had this idea of, of uh, utilizing APHIS in a slightly different way than what it was built to do. John?
1: Yeah, hey, Eric, uh, one, what, one other benefit that I could foresee of running it through um, some kind of APHIS like that is the same reason I think, at least I do, and I I recommend it, uh, going down the list after making your hit. And let's say the person's at the first uh, candidate position. Uh, You know, sometimes there's a question of, well, did you look at the rest of the list? A lot of people will say, well, no, why do I need to do that if I identify the first individual? Well, one response I usually have for that is, well, if you look at the rest of the list, there's two benefits. The first is you can see how similar the other candidates in the list are. And if the second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth all have a similar arrangement of minutiae, then if nothing else, it'll give you some sense of the specificity of the arrangement. How truly rare are those features? Uh, if no one else in that list shares anything at all like that arrangement that you've searched, well, then that's actually additional support for the specificity. And, and I think that's a good thing to be able to do. Because at the moment, the best you can do is rely on your quote-unquote training experience and knowledge but how good is your internal database truly on how rare a configuration is? So it's some kind of measurement tool for the rarity of the characteristics. And the second thing is, second benefit is just seeing, looking for close non-matches. Whether or not they're training materials or research materials or G whizzes, you know, whatever. It, it's helpful to look for other close non-matches. So it, I, I, I do see value in running manual compared identification through APHIS for that first primary reason of a measurement of specificity of those features, limited to level one and level two.
0: Exactly, kind of calibrate. It can help in in making your decision, you know, like you're saying, if the top five candidates all have those features, you know, because it's like the outflow of the loop and it's all kind of generic then that can be kind of like, oh, let's not call this one. Um, or, But if it finds the one and nothing else is even close, then maybe that can kind of tip you over the edge to, to call it. But, again, that um, that also necessitates some care to be taken before you you start doing that. this is a powerful tool, and you don't want to lose control of it, um, which is kind of what I think happened in Mayfield back then. Uh, John, any chance you can come up for a quick so bunch can hear you better?
4: That's not a different question, just kind of talking about what's been discussed. And I'm kind of thinking that it's almost a confirmation bias in reverse. It's like you, you run it and then that's, that's your influence. Like when asked if it had been number one that changed your, your position. Um, and then also, my concern would be is that out of the norm? Normal procedures. If it's not out of the norm, then it's no big deal. You routinely do this. You routinely will do a hit and then you're one through eight, then it's no big deal. Now all of a sudden you've changed your rules and procedures and you've introduced something different. And then if it's not being, you know, being transparent, you're not discussing it. Uh, to me, like you know,
0: addressed that one pretty well. Uh, any other, um, well, actually, let's get into the Florida thing since that's kind of a, we kind of, kind of came up as a tangent. But if someone from Florida can, can kind of come up and give us a brief, Brian, yeah, a brief uh, overview of what you can say about APHIS in Florida court and, um, and what you can't.
5: Hey, Glenn. Brian Turkey
1: at Miami, Florida. How are you? Oh, hey. Yeah, hey, how are you doing?
5: Good, thanks. The issue we're having here in Florida, uh, and we're finding out perhaps more and more that we're, seems like one of the few people that have this issue. Mentioning APHIS during trial, 99% of the time will create a mistrial. What's happening is we're making the APHIS hits, pulling the card, making the ID, going, now months go by, go to give a deposition based off that APHIS hit, still never received any prints from the defendant, in a day or two before trial, sometimes after a jury's even picked, we'll go and take the prints of the defendant and testify to that comparison instead, um, while leaving out any mention of AFIS. Um, you know, they want total transparency, but they just want to know you made the ID. So that's one of the issues, and I, I don't know if you've experienced that or heard of anybody else experiencing that. Um, another thing I've always been concerned about an asked attorney is we're reporting out an identification to a jury, sometimes the date of that identification was after the jury was picked. And I've always asked, isn't the jury questioning if, if fingerprints was your primary source of evidence, why was the ID made after the trial started? So now
0: just for clarification, is the worry yeah. that the you know it uh, came up as a as a hit in AFIS um, going to bias the jury into thinking that this person has prior convictions, is that the basis for this? That,
5: that, that's the argument because a lot of the databases uh, local databases and state databases contain not only criminals, well they, it contains criminals. Right. So they think that will prejudice the jury into um, the idea that well this guy's already a criminal. And we've tried to go the route well can we use the prints that he was arrested with And their their argument, because the jury knows they were arrested for what they're being tried for, and the argument we're getting from the state attorney is, well, those prints were taken so long ago, and it's an assembly line in the jail, so nobody's going to be able to point that defendant out in court as a person they took the prints from. Um, Now, in my opinion, I think it's making us an eyewitness now because we're actually having to point that defendant out in court.
3: Wow.
0: I know in Arizona, just to start off, well, first off, you know, a report has to say that it came from AFIS. That's like an ISO requirement. That you have to state you know, what database was searched, and that it has to be a whole part of it for accreditation. Uh, but then in court, if it does come from an AFIS search, um, the prosecutor follows that up with, well, whose fingerprints are in the database? I say, well, if you're arrested or if you're an applicant uh, to, you know, to be a, a cop, or if you're a teacher, or if you're a forensic scientist like me, like all these prints are in the database, and it's never been a deal, but the prosecutor, if Avis comes up, almost always follows up with that question of who's in the database uh, to really refute that, uh, that worry, so that the jury hears that people can be in the database without having uh, a prior conviction or a prior arrest. So it was really surprising that, that everyone's, you know, so so concerned about this topic because you're you were saying earlier your database is a mixture of arrestees and applicants, right?
5: Yeah, that's correct.
0: Glenn, any thoughts on this?
1: Well, I, I have run into it in Minnesota before, and you know, the attorneys are all aware of it, so they usually agree ahead of time how they're gonna handle it. I I see this as their job, not ours. And, um, you know, there are phrases that are available to them, you know, did you make an identification? Yes. And did you make an identification to records, uh, that, you know, are, that you obtained through the the course of your business? Yes. Okay. Done. I mean, where those records came from, if they don't want that entered in, I don't see, I don't see why they can't ask appropriate questions. Just, you made an identification to records which were provided to you. Yes. I, I don't I don't see why they need to get into it, establish, and I understand what you know um, the the idea that we're not supposed to bring up their criminal history, but there are there are plenty of phrases available to side skirt this issue. And I, but I see this as they obviously should be made aware if they're not aware of the issue. But at the same time, it seems like it's kind of their job to be aware. Exactly.
5: We we had an issue in Miami Dade a few months back where um, we are doing those reports, saying which database we searched, doing all the documentation. I had an examiner attend a deposition. During that deposition, he had his AFIS screenshot. The defense attorney asked him, "Well, how many points did you see?" And he had the screenshot plotted, and the defense attorney actually counted them up himself. Said that many. And, and my examiner agreed, day before court, he gets a subpoena to go now print the defendant and make the comparison with the, with the defendant who's already in the courtroom so he could point them out. And now he has to do another documentation, a new report. But this time, he had more points on that. And it mm. created a huge problem in court because the defense said, well, no, during your deposition, you told me there were x number of points. And the examiner said, well, that, I'm not talking about that comparison. So it created a huge problem. I, I think that was on fault of the state for not letting them know they're doing a, a new comparison. But at the same time, the defense knew that his defendant was never printed. That, that ID was made off of a, a long prior arrest. Right. So there's some sort of disconnect there. But after many discussions with the state attorney's office, it came down to two issues. Um, it's more convenient to have, for them to have a hmm. subpoena, a latent examiner, come across town and print the guy and redo everything. And secondly, they said they need somebody to point him out in the courtroom. And uh, I've discussed it with a few people here before where I actually told the state attorney because months had gone by, did not ask me to point this person out because I do not remember. Even when he showed me a picture, sure enough, she went right down her script. And said, "Can you point him out?" And I said, "No. didn't you print him?" Yes, that was, that was months ago. and I was really offended because here I, I, I went did my case totally scientifically, documented, reported my findings, and now it's coming down to, can I remember what that guy looks like?" It wasn't what I was there to do.
1: Yeah, that's crazy.
0: Uh, worst was Florida, yeah <laughs> Uh, most of the time when I go in and testify, uh, they just ask, you know, who do you identify, what's the name of the guy on the, on the card, and that's it. They just, they never ask. If they need someone, if they think it's important in this case, the defense is going to make a deal about it, um, then they will occasionally ask uh, about, you know, confirming the identity, and at that point um, it is, uh, we do the, the, the chain link, right? So the investigator or the case officer goes and prints the guy, the case officer then says, that's the guy I printed. Uh, I compare the ten print card to the 10 print card from my files, that's the same guy. And then uh, I've also previously compared this latent to the 10 print card from files, that's the same guy. So, this latent to, this temp, to the file temperate card to the now new ink temperate card to the case officer appointed the guy in court, you know, uh, that just daisy chain link saying these are all the same person. But most of the time, it's just like, you know, ident- identify this latent to a card uh, that's labeled as coming from uh, Tom Jones and um, that's it, like the, you know, the defendant's name is Tom Jones and. And and we don't go any further than that. Um, uh, the uh, the prosecutor doesn't most of the time doesn't feel the need to have that uh, finger being pointed to in court. Here's a good here's a good now that I'm thinking about it. Here's a good way
3: to to, to, to handle it. How's DNA do it?
0: They have to do
3: the same thing in the state of Florida. We have, they actually have to once they get the codes hit. Yeah. We actually have to get a court order and then go back and and swab them and, them and resend the, the actual back to FDLE. that's their requirement. and then there's someone
0: that goes into court and points so that's the guy yep. who i swapped
5: we, yeah. we, well, in my, yeah. Yeah, miami Dave, it's usually the detective who's been handling the subject for a while so it's it's getting the dna swab This takes significantly less training than getting quality fingerprints right so I, it's usually a detective just go and take the swab and bring it back to the
3: lab I think it all started, all this issue with us in Florida started when LiveScan came in. Because before LiveScan, it was rolled ink uh, prints on 10 print cards, the officer signed the card, the officer or the defendant also signed the card, and so you had multiple things on it. LiveScan don't have that anymore. That, there's a total disconnect. And so for a while after life was there, we were still doing it the way, old way where they would just rely on the 10 print card that, we, uh, that was from the jail. And then one time, it happened one time in our courtroom where a defense attorney uh, raised the question of how can we be sure that that 10 print card was from that individual. And so the, from that case, that um, caused a big stink in court. I think uh, they ended up throwing out the evidence. And from that time on, in our in our jurisdiction, in our uh, judicial system, we have to do the same thing. We have to go in, and we'll match it with the record print, and then we have to go in and actually fingerprint them, either in the jail or in the court or wherever, and then go the guy in the blacks uh, or you know whatever. Right. Well, I think one way maybe to
0: to start you know breaking this craziness is to see if you can get away with, with the days of June. Or even if you do have to go in and print the guy, don't compare that to the latent again. Compare it to the uh, 10 print record, um, and then you're like, okay, both of these match this, so that it's all the same. That is awesome.
3: We started doing that, yeah. that's, the, that's the first thing we went to. Right. Just 10 print to 10 print. And then, oh man, it ra- raised another stink. They said, no, We. We want because I tried to explain to them we compare A to B, B to C, right? And, and exactly, and the, the attorneys cannot get that straight in their head, and so they, they said absolutely not. And uh, we went back and forth with them on that a hundred times, and so they make us actually do the recomparison. Well, probably one of the reasons why I'm
0: not the, the head of a crime lab is if I wasn't head of a crime lab. I'd say, all right, see you guys later.
3: We're done. <laughs> this is what we're going to say. If you don't like it, then we'll see you later. That would be awesome. And the other thing with that is, um, you know, it really causes a problem for us. Is that trying to get that print to roll. Like, they'll have us come into court, they're all chained up, yes. and you're, you had a crappy link, and you need a certain area of that print, and they got crappy equipment in there, and you're trying to... Many times you go in there and roll it and you get back to the office You compare parent. I'm like, it's, you know, it's no good. And so we even had to make up new policies of what we doing. I was like, all right, if it's a latent comparison, we got to either have them come to our office if they're out or if they're in custody, we got to go to the jail where they're, where we have, uh, you know, we're not in the courtroom. Plus when they're in the courtroom, guess what they're doing? They're, they're sweating. Yeah. They're nervous, their hands are wet. So you're like wiping your hands down with paper towels, trying to get them dry, else the prints come out all uh, nasty. And so you run into all these little issues. It's just, it it drives you nuts.
0: Yeah, because I mean, late print examiners are expensive, you know? Their, their time is expensive. Get get a 10 print examiner or a clerk <laughs> or, a, or a cop to do it, man. They're cheap. So that was Rochelle. But, um, saying that they, they get temporary examiners to, you know, roll the guys, they come into court, they point to the guy, match it up with the previous record prints, and then the data chains, you know, all connected. So, in Arizona, the late print people do the, the prior uh, prior conviction comparisons. And, um, but even then, it's like, um, you have to, you know, do they always do all this work ahead of time, and then sometimes if they're not convicted, then they're like, oh, never mind. Like, so we're trying to be like, okay, can you at least wait until the guy's convicted before we actually have to do this conviction comparison? And uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But it's all this crazy stuff with the temperance that you're like, well, this should be easy to figure out and to like get a system all set up that, that where this is all taken care of. But um, I mean, I think it's worse in Florida than other places, but I think a lot of jurisdictions are are... Trying to handle these problems of, of how to get all these systems to talk to each other and how to identify people other than when they just come in um, and get their prints rolled in the jails in the in the prison system.
5: You know, I talked to some defense attorneys and not that any of this as a game, but I did have one confess to me that it was a tactic as making it as inconvenient for the state as they can and the latent examiner. So the subpoena latent examiner will come print a defendant, but it, it's during the uh, morning soundings where they know latent examiner is going to have to drive 11 miles through rush hour traffic to get down to the courthouse and hope the jail brought him over that day and then wait for judge to get the, that defendant, drive back. Now you, you've had this latent examiner off the bench for four or five hours in some cases, yeah. not even necessarily get the print. And then they have to go back another day. Um, it's just not
3: fun. It's a waste
0: of time. Yes, it is a waste of Do yes. they play games like that up in Minnesota?
1: Yeah, I <laughs> yeah. Um, that that sounds uh, like nothing at all. Like any defense attorneys I've ever heard of. Well, that's that really is is a shame. And uh, again, I I do think that. I mean, you, you said it, Eric, if you were in charge of a crime lab, I, th- I think part of this has to come down to a lab director making some sort of decision of how he wants their people spending time. And if prosecutors can't work this out with the defense with defense in front of judges, uh, all three of the, these groups need to work this out because I mean as as they're saying, these are these are fairly ridiculous stories in the waste of taxpayer money. And if that's how they want taxpayer money wasted, as opposed to doing other tasks, well, then that that's on them. But it, it this this is where good management needs to step up and take a stand and say, "All right, you guys need to work this s out."
0: <laughs> yes, a well, good way to put it. All right, so that's a little bit of the, the Florida perspective. Uh, um, what are some other uh, other topics or questions you guys might have for us? So, right, so, Rochelle was, um, was mentioning the NIST article by um, Steve Lund and Hari Ayer. Uh, yeah. And saying that maybe uh, likelihood ratios aren't the, you know, the most amazing and perfect thing ever, and that there are some areas of forensics where they shouldn't be applied. Not saying that you shouldn't use them ever, but that you need to be careful when they're applied and uh, uh, and only in appropriate circumstances, because um, they either might not be appropriate or uh, they might they may be too subjective because it depends on the person that's creating them, or they just may not be interpreted by the jury correctly. Does that kind of mm-hmm. sum up everything, Michelle? Yeah, I just wanted to. Go ahead. Why don't you take that one first?
1: Yeah. Okay. So, um, <laughs> I have seen our Ari R- e or Ari, I think it's Airy, I think, and Steve present before, and they are good presenters. Uh, they present really complicated stuff very well, and I know that Airy had come to Minnesota for the statistical conference, and and there was lots of discussion, like the ratios at that conference. And so I was very surprised to read that article that he doesn't seem to support likelihood ratios and that NIST is allowing this discussion uh, fairly early in, in all of this. It, it seemed um, – okay, so here's what's confusing to me is I don't actually, after reading the article, understand what their problem is. I don't know if they have a problem against the concept of likelihood ratio. I don't know if they have a problem with the concept of a Bayes framework because they're slightly different things. You you plug a likelihood ratio into a Bayes framework, but you don't have to. You can use it for whatever else. But is it that they have a problem with the Bayes framework? Do they have a problem with assigning a prior in a Bayes framework? Do they want to get rid of likelihood ratios altogether? And if so what do they propose? What is an alternative? Because the likelihood ratio is just a probability and it's competing probabilities under different conditions. It's him or it's not. So what the hell do they want to use instead of that? Um, The article is very confusing to me because it's just not clear. And, And multiple points within the article, they talk about likelihood ratios, but then talk about priors in in a Bayes framework, which is an old long-standing argument against using a Bayes framework, that you need some prior information going into Bayes, a Bayes decision. Yeah, and that's a well-known phenomenon. Um, And okay, um, nothing new, but again, what do they propose in its stead? So that's that's my biggest... um, critique of this, and actually I mentioned this already on LinkedIn, it's not clear what their actual problem is and what they propose to replace it. It it, it seems like an article causing more problems as opposed to clarifying any position whatsoever.
0: Yeah, I, I still need to read the entire thing. I've only kind of skimmed through it so far. Um, and you're right, it wasn't immediately apparent what the alternative proposition is. It, um well, this is a very much a statistician kind of question, but are, is is part of the issue? are they frequentists instead of Bayesians?
1: I didn't think so, but now I'm thinking so, and if this if that's all this is is frequentist versus Bayesian well, okay, fine this this argument's been around for forty years. yes, um nothing nothing new, but if they if their argument is likelihood ratio shouldn't be used for forensic science. I don't know how they can dispute 30 years of other, suggested otherwise and research, empirical data and research, showing that likelihood ratios actually would be very useful in capturing in a transparent manner competing probabilities. And I, I think
0: they, they clearly did say in the article that they're not suggesting that likelihood ratios shouldn't ever be in forensic science. I think that that sentence is in there, like almost like that. Uh, yeah. But their their um, I think the their overall point is that it's not universally applicable to forensic science.
1: Yeah, I, there I can understand there might be circumstances, especially when you get into activity level. But I don't see how it's not useful. Let's just say for fingerprints, I don't see how it. I, I just I I can't fathom this position.
0: So um, it's an interesting question. I, I think um, you know at least in the short term, it's an interesting counterpoint to uh, some of the other critics that are saying you can't do fingerprints without uh, a, a probability or likelihood ratio. Um, where now you can come back and say, well, there's at least some people that are questioning whether or not you can do this with for uh, for latent prints. So you know, depending on what questions come up uh, in court, uh, you know, the, this this article can be kind of useful in that vein. I know uh, Ari uh, is, is fairly new to uh, latent print specifically, uh, even with his, uh, all those other experiences, um, but um, it would have been helpful, to, I think, to have some sort of alternative, at least theoretical alternative. Uh, to the likelihood ratios, or if he's saying just go with the expert and what their categorical opinion is to be more a little more clear in stating that in the article.
1: Yeah, and that would surprise me based on what we saw in the workshop that we did at that statistical conference here in Minnesota with lay people and police officers and attorneys. And there's definitely was some confusion about. Likelihood ratios, and it and it was clear that it required some explanation, and mainly giving them an anchor point that if you throw out a number, you have to explain if that's a big number, a medium number, or a small number, and why. I mean, but with that basic information, I I don't see why um, they would be against that.
0: Well, everyone else is thinking unless someone has one. John, you do okay. Go ahead. Uh, Glenn, your, your first thoughts on this?
1: Well, if I heard it correctly, it and I I'm just I need to clarify, if I heard it correctly, it was we're training people how to pass a certification exam, not necessarily be good examiners. Is that the gist of it?
0: Yeah, and then once we, when you, like uh, they're bringing in outside contractors to do some work, um, just being certified wasn't the best predictor of how good of an examiner that they were.
1: Interesting. Um, Well, this is actually the first time this topic, I think, has come up in this manner on the show. It's a little controversial. And, uh, well, um, keeping in mind that, uh, uh, well, let's be sensitive to our IAI hosts, of course, that uh (laughs) – (laughs) that run the certification test. Uh, I, I, I think it's a really interesting observation. And I have known, well, I've known plenty of examiners who have taken that test, passed it. And I would have to say, yeah, we're mediocre examiners. And I've known people who I thought were pretty good examiners and then struggled to pass that test, particularly because of the time element. Uh, they get freaked out by the the time aspect um, this isn't uh, I'm sure bill will remember many of these arguments going back that the certification test as it is is it a test of excellence is this a test of competency you know I, what is it really measuring and I think um, I didn't catch the name of the individual asked the question uh,
0: John, John oh
1: yeah okay all right <sighs> I would say that there is, a, uh, there is a focus on trying to pass that test today um, as opposed to demonstrating skill as a latent print examiner. I'm going to lump it all in, though. I'm going to throw in proficiency testing as well. And it, I, In fact, I'll feel better about it if we talk about proficiency testing and certification testing. I think you have to have obviously some level of skill to pass either one of these both of these tests you know look at just the answer that you have arrived at and there is some predisposed knowledge that there is going to be x number of identifications present in these tests and that it's not like casework where you might only have one identification and lots of non identifications and it doesn't look at your documentation it doesn't look at you know how you arrived at your conclusions and all of these things i just came back from china and we'll talk about this maybe in another episode eric but i saw their proficiency testing program there in china and it was pretty amazing they have you know six thousand people that they have to administer uh, the these proficiency tests to you know every year and it's not just compare these but they have to do a whole you know workup they have to explain how they reach their conclusions they have to show. Um, you know the basis for these conclusions they have to do a narrative they have to explain the distortion they have to do a markup and a chart up and then when they get feedback from the test they get feedback on not just the conclusion but their actual markings whether or not they marked accurate minutiae or not where did they have a good assessment of uh, the latent print and how you know the distortions present and all these other things given that the you know, the ground truth of the case. And it was, it was really impressive to see that the test went beyond just what the actual answers are, but the process that they use to reach that. And I think, you know, the question here gets that, shouldn't we be testing more than just how you know what the answer is but show your work and you know he used the analogy of in school teaching our students how to pass a test i think this is the same thing it's it's showing your work and and it's it's in the work the devil's in the details it's in the work that you can demonstrate your skill as a latent print examiner not just having the right answer in in my opinion
0: yeah that's that's interesting
3: yeah wrong um i'm a certified footwear examiner for the II, okay. and that's exactly how the test is for the II. For the footwear. For footwear, it is it's not just about the conclusion; it's about all the documentation that you did, the analysis part of it, and everything in it. And so when they send, I love you, it. When they send you your practical, you you've got X amount of days to complete it, but they're not just going to be looking at that; they're going to look at the all the other part. Maybe. Maybe that's something the II could look into for CLPE, too, as well. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Okay, John, you, you brought this up initially. Do you think that the test 10 years ago, uh, or when you first took the test, was a better uh, predictor of quality exam? Uh, was the test harder before? Well, I haven't
4: taken it. Oh,
0: okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, just you knowing and then seeing what, what other people are doing.
4: But, well, I think because we didn't have that training. We didn't have classes set up how to pass the test. One of the best practices for taking this test, we didn't have that. It was, we did a bunch of work at, at your agency and we got to a point where it encourage you to take the test. Right. And I think we definitely had a higher fail rate back then than we do now.
0: Well, I think. The the high, the, uh, the the change in the failure rate has lots to do with with prep classes getting you ready for the test, and more to do with how the test has changed. So uh, to be now part because the being certified the certification program at the II is accredited, um, and part of that uh, accreditation is you have to use ground truth samples. So they have to know, you know who left this, mar- this latent, uh, and then you know, provide that if it's going to, supposed to be a match, provided or not, um, to be either an ID or an exclusion. Back with the old test, um, pre-2011, uh, 12, I think is when they changed, um, it was just everyone on the cert board just pulled out of their files, well, this is the hardest comparison that I've ever had to do, here, put this in the test. it was just 15 of the hardest comparisons that the board had ever had to do. Um, So I think in just going from that, where you're finding these over thousands of comparisons over a career, versus creating the latents, creating latents, they can only kind of be so hard, unless you spend a whole lot of time uh, creating a whole bunch of latents uh, to make them, you know, difficult, or as difficult as the old test was. Um, but then it comes down to, well, should, you know, I guess it probably should be a ground truth test. So we can't really go back to the way it was. But even with proficiency testing, uh, which Glenn's kind of lumped this together, and I, I agree, um, the expectation from a quality assurance department is that everybody passes the test every year. Well, what do you do if someone doesn't pass the test? Well, then they can't do casework. Well, then okay, we got to make the test so that everybody can pass it. And again, going back to the school analogy, if you yeah, make a test so that you know easy enough so that everybody can pass it, then what is really the point of the test? Um, so I'm glad I've had this discussion before. How do you make it so that um, it it's uh, designed to test more of the entire process, not just the answer, but also be difficult enough uh, to actually test. Real someone's skill, and not just that they're they can bear. You know, they can do at least ink to ink comparisons. Um, and I think part of the way forward might be to not have it as a separate test, but to incorporate it into casework. Um, just slip it in as a as a regular thing that they don't know is a test. Look at the answer, but also look at how they went through the whole market process and uh, maybe that's a better way at least for proficiency tests maybe that's a better way to do it um, and then if there's a problem that's going to get column verification how you're testing the entire system um, but for uh, cert uh, that's that's a tough question to answer of, of do you have different levels do you have like the basic you know they can do the job and then you have like okay this person is super examiner um, and then, you know, how is that all set up? Uh, you know, do you maybe throw in more questions that have to do with like, you know, statistics and research and black box and you know more complicated questions on the uh, on that part of the test?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would lo- I'd love to see the the subject matter part of the test updated to. A lot of the more modern issues we're dealing with, and yes, being aware and knowledgeable of black box and some of the research studies, those are the kinds of things I think we have to be able to answer today, as opposed to history questions. You know, there's so much history. I've never been asked who wrote the first book on fingerprints. I've never been asked, you know, uh, who who came up with you know this classification system. Those are simply things that don't ever come up in real cases in the courtroom. Um, and and I, I think the other thing too, uh, there is some back and forth discussion there. I think examiners in the past, and I, I, let me know if, if Bill is uh, will nod vigorously when I start saying this. That in the past, examiners, you know, started off in 10 prints. So all they did was comparisons day in, day out, day in, day out. And that was their training. That trained their eye that by the time they got over to a latent print unit, they had already done hundreds of thousands of comparisons. Whereas I think when, the way we're training today, they, just, they don't have the volume comparisons by the time they get to the latent print. You know, side of the house, and then you know they're ready to take the exam within two years. So, I, I do see that there are some distinct differences in how we train examiners today versus what they would have had in the past.
0: Yep, um, that's got to work into it too. So, um, it's yeah, the, the, the departments that have a path for examiners to go from 10 print to latent are becoming pure. Are, are, at least in my lab in Arizona, there's gone a path there. Like the, the um, and we've had actually 10 print examiners try to come over. And they're either um, put in different units, not latent prints, um, or, or they don't make it through some sort of process to come on over. It, it's, it's unfortunate when you have someone who seems to have a good eye, they've looked at hundreds of thousands of comparisons over their career in 10 prints,
1: now they're learning how to do DNA. Um, uh. Yeah, and, and that's the separation between the skill side of the house and the knowledge side. That we're looking for scientists often, you know, who can read those studies, potentially understand research to be able to testify that way in court and talk about those things. And that has nothing to do with the skill of the job and the skill of the examiner. Right.
0: Um, but, you know, you if you have somebody with a science background and who came up with the prints, and then you put them, at, you know, to do toxicology and uh, stuff, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, bureaucracy. Uh, but uh, John, great, uh, great set questions. Anything else you want to follow up with on that? Yeah, and introduce yourself to, to Glenn too. Uh, D. Smith from Broward Chair's Office.
1: Oh yes. Well, I mean, I, I was just listening to that last discussion, and I didn't hear the second woman to speak. Um, I mean, I mean, I didn't catch her name, but the, the basically the idea that the goalpost keeps moving on her as she's you know trying to apply for that job. And I, I can say when I first started trying to get into forensics in '93. I mean, it took me seven years to get into forensic science, and it was the same thing. I was applying for toxicology, and they kept moving the goalposts. They said, well, you should get a master's degree. I got a master's degree, and they said, well, you should really get a PhD. I started working on a PhD in toxicology. Well, you need some real-world experience, and I started doing that. I, they, they kept moving the goalposts, and it, and it was frustrating. On the other hand, uh, especially in Broward County... This also indicates exactly what I was speaking to earlier—that it's no longer just about having the skill to compare fingerprints. You also have to have this science background to be able to address these bigger issues in court. And I don't—I'm not saying they do or don't have those. I don't know—I don't know them, but I can imagine that would be one reason that Broward County is moving that goalpost because they are trying to make sure that the scientists that they hire can handle those larger issues and be able to testify to research and these things going on court because the challenges are real. And and I know in Broward County right now, they are having real challenges to their forensic science. The DNA unit has gone through real huge challenges. The latent print unit is going through real challenges right now. And uh, again, I I, I sympathize. That is no doubt frustrating year after year uh, to be denied that. I empathize and sympathize and i've been there Uh, i would just like you said encourage them to maybe consider you know a different agency if they're close to retirement lop it off and then consider using that experience somewhere else that's not satisfying but i i i i can i can understand their frustration but looking at it from the other other viewpoint um yeah it's it's a very different ball game uh in the last 10 years and um you know, it, it requires us to elevate our game, in, especially in the courtroom.
0: I would say, though, that uh, one step that you guys are obviously taking uh, is, is improving yourselves by coming to like a public yeah. office.
1: Uh, yeah, for
0: sure. And, and being ahead, not just, okay, once I'm a late print examiner, then I'll learn about all these late print things, right? But, um, but you know, ahead of time, you know, going to conferences, hearing people talk. Um, uh, you know, hearing building just, that right, resume exactly and then also um, you know a little plug for the, the podcast you know here here listening to episodes while you guys are working on your system uh, that we're going to talk about black box or PCAST or all these other things so that when um, you know when that next chance comes up uh, and uh, you, know, you have the opportunity to um hopefully in the interview, kind of share some of that knowledge of not only do I have you know, 20 plus years or almost 20 years of experience uh, looking at bridges, uh, but here's what I know about uh, about all the research and all the challenges and all the court stuff and all the critics. Uh, I know about all this too, so I'm the perfect candidate to, to come in here. And that will help whether you try again at Broward or even somewhere. All right, Glenn, any final words for, uh, for the, the audience in general?
1: Well, uh, I would simply say thank, thank them for their uh, questions and um, getting a discussion going. Uh, it sounds like they were a lively, engaged audience, and we always appreciate that. And I really wish you all a great conference and uh, hope you learn something to take away.
0: All right, guys, thank you guys, everybody, for, uh, for coming uh, this morning. Um, and uh listen to myself and, and glenn you know a couple thousand miles away and, and glenn don't worry the, the beaches are are terrible um <laughs> and uh, and not beautiful at all right now um, I,
1: I have been there that is one of my favorite places in florida i love panama city
0: it is great um but uh for anyone listening later on and not, not actually here i lucky enough to be here at the conference um uh, uh, you know, please uh, email us um, with any kind of questions or comments or follow up stuff on any of these discussion things. Uh, glenn and I are happy to revisit any of these topics on future episodes uh, my uh, email address is eric at rayforensics.com Glenn's is glenn at eliteforensicservices.com uh, and uh, you know, always uh, check out um, my website or run this website for Glenn's uh, classes that uh, that are coming up to be uh, taught in various locations uh, coming up here soon. Uh, Listen to us on the SoundCloud app or on Stitcher or on iTunes. And uh, thank you guys all here for uh, coming to the the podcast live. And thank you everyone out in Internet land for listening. So uh, see you guys next time.
1: Bye, everybody. Have a good week.